Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast, where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Rimsera Alwan is an international human rights researcher and a PhD candidate in comparative law at the University of Toulouse Capitole in France. Her research focuses on religious freedom, civil liberties, constitutional law, and human rights in Europe and North America. Rim Sarah gave a talk at an ACMCU course in the fall of 2019 on the plight of Muslims living in France and how the French laws on religious freedom and religious identity impact minority groups in her country. And she joins us for this episode of Building Bridges. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here on Building Bridges. So today we have the pleasure of speaking to Rimsera Alouan uh, from France. And, you know, on our show we get to talk to a lot of various subject matter experts, but we don't necessarily get a chance to talk to uh, experts that have fields of backgrounds, both scholastic and in this case legal. Um, so, you know, this is a great opportunity, and we really appreciate you taking the time, you know, out of your busy day to talk with us. But before we get started, just to give a background to those listening at home, could you give a sense of how you got involved in, in the work that you do and um, what what brought you to this subject? Oh, well, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor and a uh, pleasure so uh, about my background, um, to make a long story short, <laughs> so after a master uh, in uh, comparative law, I enrolled into this never-ending journey that is a PhD. <laughs> yeah. So I'm currently a PhD candidate in law at the University of Toulouse, a beautiful city in thousand France. And uh, my research focuses on uh, religious freedom, uh, freedom of expression, civil liberties, cultural law, human rights, and uh, in France, Europe, and North America. And uh, my PhD thesis explores the practice of the Canadian and French judges acting as so-called, what I call, jurislayers, uh, with regard to the protection of religious freedom. And I do that through a thorough study of the jurisprudence and as and the case law. So as you can imagine, it's a hot topic. Yeah. And as to how I get there, well, um, <laughs> definitely not because of Ali McBeal. Mm. Uh, yeah. I believe <laughs> it could have happened. Yeah. Uh, it, I believe that um, law allows you to explore many aspects of human life in a very logical way. Mm-hmm. For me, law is the mathematics of words, you know, uh, depending on how a law is written, uh, you literally can put someone in jail or free the person from jail. So for me, law is not just about regulation and control, you know, it's the reflection of society 
And in matters of my field, you know, uh, human rights and civil liberties and constitutional law, law can do two things. It can ensure a strong protection of human rights, or it can make sure to violate them. Hence, the necessity to always be sure that the law, the legislation, abide by the rule of law. And as much as activism on the field is sorely needed and absolutely fundamental, uh, activism by itself is, um, is not useless, but is weak if it's not followed by strong policy and legislation to apply those demands. Uh, especially in regards with regards to with regards to civil liberties, mm-hmm. and same thing with law. Many laws regarding human rights, civil liberties, are the product of activism from society, and uh, I think that one cannot go without the other. And I chose to be the one behind the scene. No, that's that's very well suited. And I think you know, there's a lot of folks out there, myself included, who you know were you know are active in the communities that they're in championing and fighting for causes they care about but in the end what what makes substantial lasting change are the laws that are passed that that are in you know that affects society and allow society to grow so did you have always yourself a, a fascination with law growing up or is it something that you came to because of what you experienced in life that's a very interesting question. I guess like many kids who went to law, uh, I wanted to change the world, right? I wanted to be the next first French Algerian uh, <laughs> um, secretary of the United Nations, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and also from my experience as a kid, I did experience racism. I, I still do see what racism uh, can uh, do to people and how it affects society. Yeah. And so I have been always attracted to anything related to politics. I would always talk about it. My parents would take me since I'm like two or three to, you know, to vote, explain me how it's so important. And so I have always been, uh, you know, fascinating with that. And uh, for the little story, when I was in high school, uh, I was in a high school in a small town in southwestern France in Southwest France. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted, I, I again, it was a long time ago and internet was not a thing. I didn't know what, how a university works, leave alone how a competitive examination works. Yeah. And I wanted to do two things, or policy, so political sciences, or law. Yeah. Because for me, both go together, but I didn't know what to choose. And I will always remember those words. So um, when I told the um, high school counselor about my project of studying policy or law, she told me, you do not have the right social background and you should explore you know, other um, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty shocked. I was sad. I remember crying for days. Oh. Uh, because I really wanted to do it, right? I mean, again, my <laughs> my vision was to change the world. Yeah. I mean, I, okay, I was 18, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I didn't give up. Again, I was in a small town. Internet was not a thing at that time. So I did pass the competitive examination of policy, and uh, I failed it hmm. um, by just a couple of points. So for someone who was absolutely not prepared, at all. I was saying all students, you know, studying whatever, great authors, whatever. I'm like, 
what's going on here? <laughs> you know? yeah. So in the end, I um, enrolled into law and I do not regret it at all because it was also my first choice. Yeah. And uh, here I am a couple of years later. And uh, but, but I had my revenge. At some point, I was a lecturer in Polisai Toulouse. So, you know, <laughs> um, it, it was my revenge. But those words resonated with me. Um, and just another proof that sometimes you just have to not listen to certain people. And also how uh, people coming from, you know, minorities, whether it's like, ethnic minorities, but also social minorities or you know, disadvantaged people uh, could affect you know, your, your future. So um, the only advice I would give to people and the youth is just do it. Yeah. <laughs> you have nothing to lose. Don't listen. Just do it, really. So in France, as, you know, as opposed to in the United States, minorities are the minoritization of a populace within France. There's no recognized minorities in France. For those who may not be aware of this and how this impacts uh, cultural identity, sociocultural affairs, could you kind of provide some context as to why this is and, um, you know, when, you know, if this does have an impact on on these types of um, issues? Well, I will start by quoting the Constitution, uh, which is pretty clear. Uh, France shall be an indivisible, laic, democratic, and social republic. It shall ensure the equality of all citizens before the law, without distinction of origin, race, or religion. It shall respect all belief. Uh, it's probably the one article everybody should know in France. Mm -hmm. So indeed, um, and again, it will be something very difficult to understand from an American perspective. A, we are not a, a federal country. And I think that minorities are more easily recognized, um, yes, in federal country. Mm -hmm. uh, the French political tradition does not allow any form of recognition of minorities, since um, all the rights resulting from the French Revolution rest on two notions. The man, the man as in human, right? Yeah. And the state. So French law wants to recognize only the individual, uh, how do I say, in, in its universal quality of human being. So the principles of equality and indivisibility of the nation, uh, which are central to French constitutional law, are opposed to any emphasis on cultural differ differentialism. And maybe the, the Republic uh, remembers what happened under the ancient regime where any recognition of differences, whether it's social or formal, is synonymous with inequality. Mm -hmm. So there is only one people in French, in, in France, the French people. Mm -hmm. And France is composed of all French citizens, in theory, without distinction of origin, race, or religion. And I'm going to give you an example outside of the religious minority field. Uh, you probably have heard about Corsica. So Corsica, Corsica is a French island uh, southern, in southern France. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Corsicans are pretty adamant about their um, cultural specificities. <laughs> and in 1991, uh, our Constitutional Council, which is the institution in the court in charge of the judicial review, um, the Constitutional Council declared and considered that 
the mention of the Corsican people in a bill violated the constitution. Because there is only one people, the French people. There are a couple of exceptions when it comes to New Caledonia, but it's another story for another podcast, really. (laughs) But um, otherwise, there is one people, the French people. So the state seeks to ensure that individuals of foreign origin who have acquired French nationality are considered French by the entire population and not by their ethnic origin, which in theory is a great concept, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, um, as opposed to America, for example, the concept of ethnicity and race aren't recognized. Uh, the law authorizes certain exceptions, which are extremely limited and controlled uh, for research purposes. But again, extremely controlled. Yeah. Of course, sometimes organizations will try to bypass the law by formulating the questions of origins or ethnicity in a way that would not really infringe the law. But again, it's very difficult. And also the law on informatics and liberty of 1978 prohibits any form of stalking data on religion, ethnicity, or race. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I agree. um, The lack of statistics, and it caused debates here, right? Um, The lack of statistics, especially for, you know, um, human rights organization, activists, etc., who are trying to bring more evidences for cases on discrimination, this lack of statistics is problematic. But again, try to be French for one second. Mm -hmm. Uh, In France, we have a history and there are dangers. For example, uh, I think it was last year or two years ago, can't remember exactly, uh, a mayor in southern France I will not mention the name. Mm-hmm. He doesn't deserve attention. Yeah. Um, allegedly kept data files on um, on the Mus- the kids who apparently were Muslims. Mm. So the kids um, in the schools of his uh, city to basically prove that the great the conspiracy theory of the so-called theory of the great replacement is uh, ongoing and that Muslims are a threat to uh, the French civilization or whatever it is. Yeah. It's completely illegal, by the way, and it was a huge scandal. Um, another example recently, uh, it was last year, another debate started about removing the word race from the constitution and a commission of lawmakers working on amending the constitution unanimously agreed to remove the word from um, the text. And finally, again, you have to understand French history. Um, France has known such statistics during World War II and especially during the occupation under the Vichy regime. And what happened? The data that were kept were used to identify Jews so they can be found, arrested, and sent to Nazi concentration camps. And this is living memory for France. So in France, this memory remains alive and it partly explains the um, distrust of this kind of statistics. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in your example with, with the mayor who was, based on what you've said, doling out, I would call Islamophobic uh, rhetoric and, and policy. In France, Muslims have been, and you know, I think anyone who's been following world affairs 
have been a spotlight for religious persecution, identification, uh, ostracization within French society. Now, if in France, identity is tied to a human being's association to the state, why, why single out one religious group? Why, why go after Muslims? Uh, that's an excellent question. And um, so, first of all, you have to understand the history of Muslims uh, in, in, um, in France. Uh, you cannot understand fully this phenomenon if you don't go back in time and go back to uh, colonial France. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the crucial role of France's colonial past and its consequences, you know, especially the war of independence of Algeria. I remind you all, the unique thing about Algeria is that it was fully French. It was a French département. Yeah. And when Algeria get the independence, just imagine for one second, if Texas get the independence from America. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's it yeah. is something that's talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Algeria was a French occupied territory, right? It was colonized. Yeah. Um, so this has forged, or at least remodeled, the French vision of republicanism and assimilation, more specifically um, towards uh, Muslims. So Islam and immigration in general cannot be separated from the colonial heritage of France. And the trauma of Algeria's lost war still manifests itself in French society. And any political event in Algeria has implication for France. Just follow what's going on in Algeria right now, the protest. A lot would ask France to stay, you know, to not interfere. So yes, it, it, anything that happened in Algeria affects France and vice versa. And also because of the massive presence here of uh, the Pied Noir, the Harki, but also Algerian immigrant workers, their family, the second, third generation, who have a direct link, uh, link or indirect link with Algeria. And last but not least, the post-colonial syndrome. And um, the history of the war in Algeria has still not been fully exposed. Yeah. And the wound is still not healed. And... Um, and of course, that brings the topic of laicite, etc. And again, go back to Algeria <laughs> for the little story. Um, at that time in Algeria, uh, French authorities were actually reluctant to implement laicite and the separation of church. And it was strictly applied in metropolitan France, but never applied in Algeria. Why? Huh. So uh, the Christian and the Jews got the citizenship, you know, divide to conquer. Yeah. The Algerian were had the status of indigenous, the Muslims of Algeria, the Algerian Muslims. And France refused to apply laicity there because they, they still laicity as a tool of emancipation. Because don't forget, uh, I will probably develop it later, but um, laicite is the sine qua non condition of assimilation. If they apply it there, it would mean that Algerian are fully assimilated and as a consequence are French, hmm. right? Fully hmm. French. And at that time, the ulemas in Algeria called French authorities to apply in Algeria and fully 
the separation of church and state. And they refused. So seen from, um, and again, I'm trying to make a long story short. <laughs> um, so uh, seen from metropolitan France, the failure of the assimilation of Algeria to the French empire has often been attributed wrongly to its Muslim character. And this failure validated in the minds of many French the image of religion that by its nature resists assimilation or the irony of history. <laughs> so, you know, as long as France does not solve its larger identity crisis, uh, religious minorities, especially Muslims, will always be seen as a threat to French unity. And as long as this situation lasts, the future of this country, laicity, whatever, will be at stake due to this perpetual malicious manipulation. And, you know, perhaps it's also time for France as well as Algeria to, to turn, to, to sort things out, turn the page of decolonization and colonization without forgetting, right? But at some point we need to move forward to build the future and uh, in France, try to rethink our country to include diversity instead of erasing it. So you, you brought up laicite. Now, the law of the separation of church and state, and as a legal scholar, you're very apt to, to talk about this. That was implemented in, in the in 1900s, like 1905. I mean, At that I mean, time, there must have been an Islamic presence in France, you know, prior to the ceding of Algeria from France. What about the Muslims living in France before all of this stuff went on in Algeria? Those French citizens must have been subject to laïcité as French Muslims, you know, living in France. Well, the, the, the presence of Muslims in France is not a new thing in the sense that Algeria was France. So the Muslims have already been there. They have been fighting in World War One, in World War Two, And we recognize that, truth be told. But the, the, the phenomenon of Muslims on in metropolitan France is kind of sort of relatively a new phenomenon as it actually, um, you know, started more in the, I mean, post-decolonization in the 70s, you know, when uh, Algerians were brought to rebuild France. Yeah. It was, you know, prosperity, good economy, so they were there to uh, rebuild France, but they had to be discreet, right? So you just uh, hide them in, those ghettos, which we call the banlieue today, you know. Uh, but um, just to talk about uh, laicite, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of comments coming from America. Okay. On, uh, and truth be told, um, I know it's a misunderstanding or whatever, but I find it pretty troublesome um, because I think that if you don't understand the French language, the French culture, you're going to mark, for example, the American experience of, with Muslims onto French, with, which is deeply, uh, completely inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, it's really a unique thing. Like even in France, we have difficulties in understanding what's going on. So laïcité in France is really considered the cornerstone of French national identity. And it cannot be translated. Uh, some people will disagree with me, but I think it's inaccurate to translate laïcité with secularism. Mm -hmm. Secular, I mean, laïcité is a way to implement secularism. Uh, you have many countries which are secular, but not laic. So I will keep the word laicity. 
um, laicity is a constitutional principle. Uh, it's proclaimed in the first article of the constitution together with, and it's not a coincidence, with uh, the democratic and social nature of the French Republic and also the principle of equality before the law. And irony again, but it's a very French thing, uh, laicity is not defined in the constitution. So you have it recognized, but it's not defined. And um, this caused problem and you have, hence the importance of law and studying it, right? You need to study the judicial interpretation to basically grasp the substantive meaning of laicity. So again, long story short, <laughs> laicity is a concept regarding the separation of church and state. And in the law of 1905, actually, the word does not appear anywhere. Laicity came really after the uh, adoption of the law of 1905 on separation of church and state. Um, the, the French conception, idea of laicity can be dated back to the French Revolution of 1789. Um, at that time, the declaration of the men and the citizen uh, of 1789 guaranteed freedom of belief and the constitution of 1791 recognized freedom of religious observance. And uh, so I'm sorry for the boring part of history, but you have to understand history really to understand what's going on now. Um, two important events occurred at this time, the nationalization of the clergy's property and the beginning of state financial assistance for the church. And a decade later, an agreement between Napoleon and the Vatican restored religious peace. Um, again, you move a little in history, by 1879, or 18, 18, 18, 1879, sorry, the Republicans, as in the people who were against the monarchy, right, not the political party, uh, the, the, the Republicans gained power and at that time enacted anti-clerical legislation in order to reduce the influence of the church and the Vatican. And finally, in 1905, legislation was passed to officially separate church and state and to cut off financial aid to churches, which would, um, in return, guarantee freedom of worship. So what does it mean? It basically means that any entity, any person who represents or works for the state, civil servants, have to abide by neutrality religious neutrality in that case, but also philosophical and political neutrality. New, religious neutrality is imposed on civil servants, not on the users. Religious neutrality is imposed on any person exercising a mission of public service. Yes. And since the state basically um, is the one in charge of public service, they have to abide by it because the state is represented here. Not the users, not the private person, and religious neutrality does not, um, does not apply in the public space as well. As long as you do not disturb public order, you are free to express your you know, uh, religiosity, as long as it's not you know, proselytizing, et cetera, et cetera. So here, the word laicite is used if you want to summarize um, prevailing beliefs regarding the proper relationship between religion and the French state. So stricto sensu, 
laicite means a clear acknowledgement of the lack uh, of um, competence, if you want, in the religious domain by public authorities. And this incompetence has been interpreted as neutrality. So if you want like, to compare with the US, and I always say that when I lecture on the topic, laicite in France has the connotation that the state has to protect itself from the excess of religion. In the United States, it's the opposite, First Amendment. Uh, the religion must be protected from the excess of the state. Uh, yeah, except that today, in modern era, again, laicite does not have a precise definition. Uh, laicite is more and more based and misused based on French values, values that are nowhere to be defined. And this absence of definitions, because of this absence of definition, certain, you know, various political influences try to take control of this definition to the detriment of certain category of people, today Muslims. And that's what we call the phenomenon of new laicity, which in the end has very little to do with the original conception. And that's something people abroad do not understand. I have noticed that in America. In the end, in France, French Muslims want laicity to be fully applied and the law of 1905 to be respected in its original conception as the protection of you know, uh, religion, conscience, and of course the freedom to believe, but also to not believe. Right, so that's more the new laicity that is problematic, and the French Muslim alike apply separation of church and state. Again, remember what happened in Algeria? I mentioned it previously. Fun fact to finish on this topic: um, if you study uh, religious freedom across Europe and the relation between state and churches, you will see that France happened to be one of the European state, which interfere the most frequently in religious matters. And uh, it's one of the country where they are the most, what we call uh, in, in law, special statuses for organizations that basically you can obtain if you succeed in being endorsed as a group that has religious activities. So there is definitely a French paradox. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. Um, and I think that's important to point out, especially for our American audience, um, that laicite is not the same as the United States constitutional uh, precedent concerning religion and the expression of religion in the United States. Now, nationalism, national identity, there's a lot of, there's a lot of political focus on the identity that one adheres to as a part of a nation state. And it seems to be fomenting in some way, um, depending on, on, on one's association to political or social groups, this fear of the quote-unquote others in society. Now, you mentioned earlier in our podcast um, what happened in you know the 30s and 40s against the Jewish communities in Europe, but that we seem to be seeing trends again with anti-Semitism, the stoking of nationalism and these 
political groups that are coming about to power on national tickets and this idea of, of being a, a nation of, of people who should be independent and, and focused on the national, uh, national identity seems to kind of be statistically measuring with a rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Would you want to talk on these trends or maybe how or if you do see any of this going on in France? Of course, in France, but also Europe. Um, again, we have been through two world war, a recent genocide, like uh, with um, with the Bosnians, Muslim Bosnians. Uh, so it's, of course, it's scary. It's, uh, you know, um, nationalism is uh, rising and shining. I, I remind you in France, um, Marine Le Pen ended up in the second round of the presidential election against Emmanuel Macron. And I see the difference, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember um, back in then when her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, for the first time managed to get to uh, the second round against Jacques Chirac. And how people of all of a sudden, you know, went to protest and like, how is this happening in this country, et cetera, et cetera. And today, like, I mean, when the, the latest election happened, we expect Marine Le Pen to actually win an election. Time has changed. We are having European election right now. And we have people, um, again, I'm not going to mention names. They do not deserve the attention. <laughs> but, uh, for example, the, 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 the man who theorized, theorize a so-called theory, sorry for the using of words, but um, the sentence is weird, but uh, the so-called conspiracy theory of the Great Replacement used by the terrorist criminal who slaughtered Muslim in uh, Christchurch. Mm -hmm. uh, well, guess what? This man is running for European elections. <laughs> in the UK, one of the most prominent uh, xenophobe races and time Muslim activist is also running for election. And all of those people who are anti-EU, anti-immigrants, anti-anti-anti, anti-EU, right? And they're running for European election to destroy everything from within. You know, uh, a certain guy in America who used to be an advisor to the, to the American president, against I'm not mentioning names, they do not deserve the attention, uh, who, is, who came to Europe, who is in Europe to try to, you know, <laughs> um, destroy everything, I guess, using the argument of the threat of, you know, immigrants, Muslim, a threat to the Judeo, the so-called Judeo-Christian values. Uh, by the way, the Judeo-Christian notion is a farce, right? Mm -hmm. uh, usually I reply, hold on, the Judeo part of Judeo-Christian before, after the Holocaust, because I can't remember a time in Europe when we have been kind to, Jewish com to the Jewish communities, right? And the, unfortunately, uh, the, the, the Jewish people are used as, as you know, uh, are used, you know, to justify horrible, you know, and, and they are victims too. Anti-Semitism is rising and Jews are being attacked. And yet we still use, you know, uh, Jewish communities as a tool to basically justify horrible uh, narratives. And, you know, it's divide and conquer. So there is no such thing as Judeo-Christian values. It's all about white supremacy. And Jews are victims, Muslims are victims, 
immigrants are victims, refugees are victims. But I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I'm talking about Europe here. Um, but, but I'm sure there are some similarities with uh, America. So the EU itself is facing a very serious crisis, probably even unprecedented. Uh, it, it's very ironic because when you look at the history of the European Union, it was created, established post-World War II to promote peace, to ensure peace and prosperity uh, in Europe. And um, today, the, Europe is facing this nationalist and populist surge that put at stake the, the, the core democratic principles that uh, make the EU the EU, right? Um, but again, you know, uh, they capitalize on the European debt crisis uh, and, you know, the backlash against refugees uh, coming from, uh, from, but not only the Middle East, uh, Africa, etc. cetera. Uh, the, the public angst against, you know, over the growing terror threats uh, basically allow political parties, which used to be kind of marginalized, right? where it allowed them to grow at an alarming speed. If you want, I think that those parties filled a sort of vacuum, you know? And I'm sorry to say that, but the blame falls in part, at least partly, uh, on both the right and the left, the center right and the center left um, leaders who have failed to respond effectively to the European economic crisis. Uh, you know, the, this obsession over, you know, austerity, economic austerity, uh, deregulation, um, massive privatization have triggered something, you know, economic stagnation, the rise of the increasing poverty. Uh, all of that basically just show that EU failed solidarity and paved the way for ultranationalism, ultranationalism. So I don't think it's too late. I think that if, if those leaders wake up now, <laughs> we can't wait anymore, right? We, we, we cross the red line. Um, I, I think first working on economy might help. You, you know, again, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, politics and economy 101, great economy, we love multiculturalism and immigrants and whatever. Bad economy, blame, Im blame immigrants, blame foreigners, blame refugees, whatever. You know, it's it's technically a very simple uh, equation, but unfortunately, right now, uh, like I said, we cross the red line, and the next European election are going to be um, so important and decisive in what will happen afterwards. And truth be told, I'm not. I'm not optimistic at the results. I'm afraid that indeed the far right, the ultra right, is going to win seats at the European Union Parliament. And, uh, and also we are not taking seriously we are, uh, the threat of white supremacy. We are not threatening it as the transnational you know, um, threat that it is. And if we don't do that, it can only go worse. So yeah. um, again, 
I think that countries need to do some source searching and ask themselves, what kind of society do they want to live in? Because that's not the kind of society I want to live in, definitely. For those who are professionals, for those who are, yes, scholars, but also public figures, uh, do you feel that folks who are given the means in which to convey information have a responsibility to address the marginalization, the bigotry, the, the way in which people are being spoken about in the public square? And this is why I studied law. <laughs> uh, um, not only we do have a responsibility, but we should be held accountable for not raising our voice or calling out policies, you know, that um, deeply infringe human rights. Don't get me wrong, there are also uh, extreme voice within experts. And that's how we need to engage, right? You know, we are lucky as professionals, uh, and in my case, as an academic, to have the skills to do so, to amplify voices, to, to you know, and I believe it, uh, it's our duties as scholars, intellectuals, citizens, human, uh, to, to um, stand up against bigotry and marginalization and racism, etc. And, you know, uh, I want to believe that there is still hope to save humanity from itself because, you know, when there is a will, there is a way. There is always a way. So don't give up. Thank you for joining us on this, on this podcast, for the work that you're doing. And, you know, we at ACMC wish you the best of luck in everything that you do and want to thank you again for, for, for taking the time to talk with um, Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much for having me. And um, it was a pleasure uh, to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes.